and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board games. We talk about them, and we tell you what we think about them, and you pretend to think that our opinion matters. And we appreciate that part. The deception is it brings joy to our hearts. It's, it's fantastic. All this being said, there's this. We, I've talked about this giant auction. I have 100 items going up for auction on July 24th, and the auction's going to last till the 14th. I put links out last week so people could take a look at it. So if you want to look on Facebook or in our board game guild, there's a link to where the auction is. So that means this Wednesday, July 24th, it will go up live. Pass it around. Tell people about it. All the money will be used to further the show, buy us more games, buy us more equipment, blah, 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 all that other stuff. That being said, that's on with the show. Your work of sales is excellent in that you lead with the shilling uh, before introducing anyone. That is that is excellent, well, excellent Im- impulse I, there, Walker. It was part of the thing. I, I was looking at my list, and that's you know that's the info I decided to go with. I'm not a thing. I'm not a... I can't be part of the thing. It, I, I can I can make you whatever I want. It's, I can type it in here and it says, Mark is part of the thing. And that's what it says. So that's, it's true. If this is what happens. Says, so it's right. This is what happens when I let you do the intro. It's so true. So first we're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, which was Keyflower. Then the games we played this week, the news, why it doesn't matter. Then the topic this week, which is going to be miniature tabletop gaming. And there will be no feature game because it is our summer schedule. So Mark... Have you played Keyflower since last year? I have. How many times? At least two or three. I don't think I've played it once. Oh, really? I still recognize it as a fantastic... We just talked about it. We did, about how clever its auction system is. Two weeks ago for the auction system part. Still think it's fabulous. Still one of my favorites, but I think it does suffer because there are so many little mini expansions. It suffers from that syndrome where you open the box and you go, oh yeah, I have all this extra stuff. And then you slowly close the lid again. It's already a setup intensive game. You need so many tiles from this pile, so many tiles from that pile. And then when you want to introduce the expansions, which don't introduce a whole lot of rules overhead, but then there's a question of every expansion has several different ways to play and how you mix it in with the base game and so forth. So there's that editorial challenge. And it's also the case that Keyflower, and this is one of the things we talked about in the review, you don't really get a sense of much building. It's a, it's... Not an overlong game, but in the context of how much actually happens, sometimes there's a little bit of a sense of anticlimax. You talk about this often in the context of Dungeon Lords. You know, you play a game of Dungeon Lords, and there's all these rooms to add and so forth, but at the end of it, you don't really get a sense of ownership over a massive structure. And the same to a certain extent is true of Keyflower, but the mechanisms are so clever, and the interaction is so good and all of the things that go on are so satisfying. I still defend it as an excellent design. It's just sometimes it doesn't feel like it quite comes together as the sum of its parts. But every time I play it, I'm glad to do so. Yeah, like I said, the auction mechanism is great. The the banter when you know someone you know pulls out you know five red meeples from behind the screen you didn't think they had. When someone uses your building with a color of meeple that you don't have, and then you like just look at them with this hatred of a million burning suns. These are the moments I love in in Keyflower. It's a Euro game that does very, very clever and novel things with both worker placement and auctions, two mechanisms that are frequently deployed in a very tired way. That alone is enough to recommend giving Keyflower a try. And it's probably never going to leave my collection, even though, as I say, sometimes I feel like it's not quite reaching its full potential. But it's a lovely game, both in terms of its play and in terms of its visual appeal. So Keyflower is an excellent, excellent game. And that's Keyflower, not Keyforge, the game we reviewed last year. On to the games we played this week. 
Mark, what did you play this week? Got another play of PAX Renaissance, yay. Played a game of Root. Root was our game of the year last year. I introduced it to a new player. We played with the four base game factions, that is to say the Woodland Alliance, the Birds, the Cats, and the Vagabond. And the new player actually wanted to play the Vagabond precisely on the basis that they wanted to be doing something very different from everyone else. Everyone else was an experienced player. They'd played a couple of times, but they specifically wanted the one that was radically different. And... I was a little bit concerned at first that Root was going to fall off the rails because as we commented in the review and as we commented when we praised it, it's a fabulous design, but sometimes it can be a little bit fragile. And this is characteristic of many of Cole Worley's designs. If you don't play quote unquote properly, sometimes things don't work. And specifically in the context of the Vagabond, this is one of the criticisms that I think is, is very legitimate. If the Vagabond is winning, the only way to keep the Vagabond in check is to attack them. And this gives you zero points and you do it exclusively to kneecap the Vagabond and prevent them from winning which is an unfortunate dynamic and I think one of the biggest rough edges of the design. However, in the context of this particular game, the Vagabond wasn't running away with the game, but it was very low in violence, in part because of the new player not wanting to attack anybody, nobody wanting to attack the new player, and I as the Woodland Alliance, it wasn't my interest to go smacking people around because the Woodland Alliance only prefers military action, generally speaking, in the late game. And I was concerned that that was going to lead the game to fall apart. But... I did end up about halfway through the game deciding to say, okay, well, if no one else is going to start the violence, I guess I will. And I started throwing my weight around and, and shoving people around uh, across the board. And the system rewarded me for it. It's sufficiently robust that Root is a game that you can't avoid conflict if you're just not inclined to. The incentives are there, again, with the minor exception of the Vagabond. And so I was very, very pleased with how things came together at the end, despite the fact that it looked like it might be rickety near the beginning. We played with the balance fixes, specifically for the Woodland Alliance. Uh, you know, there are very minor balance fixes for the cats. Uh, and the Vagabond, but the, the one for the Woodland Alliance is definitely the most important one in the base game. I still haven't played the newest expansion factions, the Crows and the the newest version of the Underground the, the, the Duchy. The official finished version. Uh, precise, well, finished for now. Who knows? It could change again. But I'm looking forward to doing all of that. It was very nice to get Root to the table again, and everyone had a great time, and that was Root. I got to play Neoshima Hex. You know, they say you can play with more than two players, but really it's a two-player game. I would suggest never playing it with more than two it is a sort of chess-like puzzle-type game. It is very fantastic. If you were looking for a two-player game, Nirushima Hex will do you no wrong. There are about 13 to 15 different factions you can choose from, and what you're doing is you're laying out these tiles, and what that does is create this little puzzle of initiative, right? Because all of these different units have, you know, high to low initiative, and you're trying to kill units that will kill your units faster than faster than they can kill yours and and they have there's all these different abilities and some of them have abilities that you can use every turn it's very it's very rare that units can use an ability every turn but when when they can and they can turn or move and it's very useful you're putting out two tiles every turn and there's uh actions and abilities something that you definitely have to try that's Niroshima hex what factions did you play with any of the new ones we did we played the battery one the Hexagami, Hexagoni, and I played another new one that I hadn't played before. It's a, it's an older one, but I had had trouble getting it. It's called Smart. They're like super shooty, and my opponent played Skareth, which is all about paralyzing your guys and 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 moving the HQ around so you can't target it. And what did he play in the first game? Oh, Vegas. 
Mm. There's a faction called Vegas, and what they do is they take over uh, your opponent's units. You know, mind control them, or however you want to look at it. It's a fantastic game. Definitely check it out. I get to play Modern Art. Modern Art was brought up by several of our listeners in the context of our discussion of auction games, and I left it out probably by design because I, 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 even after all these years, I have yet to fully reconcile my many varying opinions on Modern Art. Modern Art is the, by many accounts, the definitive Reiner Knizia auction game, and I got to play on the new CMON edition that was put out a couple of years ago. And I received this through the anonymous generosity of one of our listeners. It just showed up at my door, and no one will tell me who paid for it. So thank you to whoever did that. That was great. I have to assume that it was in a connection to my commenting that I, I've been meaning. I always mean to give modern art more tries over the years. I will say the following thing. First of all, the Simon edition is wonderful. It's got a little wooden gavel. It's got actual contemporary artists. Past editions have all had fake, really terrible art. And that was always part of the joke. It was kind of a satire if you, if you wanted to be charitable about it, about, about how terrible modern art can be. But these artists are very distinctive, very compelling, and also very strange in a lot of ways. And so you still get this bizarre sense of, you know, there have been some editions where you actually play with classical paintings, you know, like here's a Monet or whatever. And that I think undercuts some of the, the, the strangeness of the theme. So I like that it's weird, but it's also visually compelling. So it's not hideous. It, it, it's very, very nice large tarot-sized cards, wonderful uh, cardboard sets for money. It's a great addition. I highly recommend it. And honestly, this was probably my best favorite playing of modern art because about halfway through the game, and this very rarely happens to me, I was able to take a step back and say, wait a minute, this is no longer an auction game. This is a game of speculation, just rank speculation, because I, I got the impression that everyone was overpaying to, to, to far too much. And so being an auction game where you pay the auctioneer, I figure, well, everyone, everyone here is, you know, handing over $59 off of something they expect is going to sell for 60 more or less. I'm exaggerating. So I just stopped buying things. I, on, I only sold paintings. I didn't buy anything for the second half of the game. And it ended up being a successful strategy. And that felt great. And it really, I've been, I've been conceptualizing modern art as, you know, a pure auction game, which, because that's all you do. You just run auctions. And I've been contrasting that with Raw, which I'd always viewed as less of a pure auction game and more, more as a push your luck game. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, when I do well at Raw, it's because I internalize it as such, not really about auctioning. It's more about pressing your luck. And maybe I've just been falsely categorizing modern art. I've, I've been misconceptualizing it. And so I'm going to try to play it again soon enough so that I can see if I can view it again just as rank speculation. That's all that's really going on. All the auctions are just secondary to this issue of do I think that people are overpaying for whatever marginal gains they're going to get? And maybe it's the case that I need to corner the market on buying all the paintings because people are being too stingy or I just need to stop buying anything, which is not usually what you do in an auction game. Most auction games, you have to buy things in order to win. That's definitely true of his uh, Reiner Knizia's other auction games like Medici or Raw, certainly. There's no winning strategy in Raw where you don't buy anything. But in Modern Art, apparently it's doable. So maybe I've just been wrong all these years. I, I, I'm starting to kind of peel away some of the layers, I think. And so more to follow on Modern Art, I think, especially now that I've got this, this great, beautiful copy of it. And I hope to finally give it the recognition that it deserves because every, people I respect respect modern art a great deal. And so I hope I'm able to give it that same level of appreciation. Maybe not. 
maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end up just saying it's, you know, good, not great in my estimation, but I, most recent play was definitely very promising. Uh, so that I, was, pl- I played it once. I definitely want to give it another try. I remember being halfway decent. Sure. Quadropolis is a game I pulled out because uh, I remember having fond memories of playing it. It's a great gateway game, and before it went back in the box for the auction, I pulled it out to give it another try. It's one of these games where you're placing property on a map, and you need a row of harbors this way. It gives you so many points, and a group of homes over here gives you this many points. You have the factory and power and all this. It's one of those typical games where you're placing hexes on, or sorry, tiles on a board and trying to maximize your points. Great gateway game. Other than that, it pretty well falls apart under the guise of, you know, while everyone's roughly going to get the same amount of points because everyone's roughly doing the same thing, you know, everyone's going to get, you know, because they've balanced it out. So certain things aren't going to be worth more than others, right? So if, so i.e. everyone's point value is going to be almost exactly the same where someone just eked out those last few points, you know, that are going to give them a win. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially in a gateway game. There's something about, tile lane games which is fantastic and there's something about building your own little town and village so this hits all of these things and it's wrapped up in this very interesting way of picking the tiles where they have this grid and uh, there's a mayor that blocks certain you know rows and columns and you can actually strategize on blocking people and seeing you know what tiles they do need which you know like we said can skew those few points away and give you the lead i really enjoy it and there's I like it how the fact that it has two different ways to play out of the box. It's uh, the artwork and the packaging, and it's the whole deal by Days of Wonder, Quadropolis. I got to try one of the new Lords of Hellas expansions. So a whole bunch of expansions have finally hit. Most backers for Lords of Hellas. Lords of Hellas is a strange dudes in a map game that we're both big fans of. And one of the simplest forms of new expansions, you can swap out some of the gods. All the gods give different bonuses and introduce different things into the game. And uh, I decided to swap in, even with new players, I swapped Hermes out for Apollo. So this was the Lord of the Sun expansion. And this has, especially for a new player, no visible rules overhead because... At the end of the day, it's the same mechanisms. Every god will give its own unique artifact to whoever controls the base of the monument. Every god will give you bonuses to a stat as you send priests to pray to them. But what the big thing for me that it changed was it adds a new stack of blessings. Every so often in Lords of Hellas, you do a draft for new special powers, and those cards are con- the, the, the deck of cards consists of three different decks, one for each of the gods that is in the game. And I wanted to see some of these new blessings to see if they really had a flavor of their own, because after playing about a dozen times with the same deck, it starts to blanch out, and you're like, well, you know, you know all the blessings, you don't really associate them with the god that introduces them. But I was really, I was very pleased. I was very pleased with the the, the sort of flavor that Apollo's presence, even in the simple mode, added. You can play with Apollo in a slightly more complicated way, where he introduces muses, and that that's a new level of special powers on a game that's very heavy with special powers, but they didn't recommend that for new players, and I I certainly didn't see that it would be a good idea for for new people. But as an experienced player, it was very nice to see how Apollo's presence changed uh, the game without changing any of the fundamental rule sets. So I'm looking forward, even with new players, to trying some of the other new gods like Hephaestus or Poseidon or Hades. They're not as cool as Apollo because Apollo's great, but we'll see how that works. And that was my uh, early exposure to a very small amount of the expansion material, the Lords of Hellas. All right. So on the Lords of Hellas board, there's a spot for a fourth god. Yes. Right? Yes. Now, does it say where this Apollo guy starts or does he, does a new, the new gods always show up on that bottom space? 
it depends on how you're playing them. So in the case of Apollo specifically, you can play Apollo grown-up mode, where Apollo is a fourth god who shows up on the new god space, and when you pray to Apollo, mostly it's to trigger these other special abilities, namely the orc, the, uh, the, muses. the muses. Gotcha. In the simple mode, you just remove Hermes and you plop Apollo where Hermes used to be. Gotcha. And Apollo is now the way you get more speed. And he, uh, instead of allowing you to move armies, which is what the upgraded version of Hermes allowed you to do, now the upgraded version of Apollo allows you to heal people, basically. Oh. Well, he, he was, he did have the Asclepius and he was the god of healing and a bunch of other things. Well, one of the gods of healings, there's always, there's always like three or four of them. So in the, sim- in the simple mode, as I say, the rules overhead was negligible. The only salient issue of usability was instead of the player aid that showed the three default gods in the game, you had to say, well, here's this card and it replaces Hermes. And that's fine. But the complicated one, I say complicated, the grown up version is just another layer of special weirdnesses that I think that even if if a new player seems reasonably confident and capable of dealing with with strange elements, it certainly doesn't complicate it past, say, what you would normally experience in a in a, an Eric Lang game, for oh, example. Plus, it wouldn't be huge, right? Because someone would actually have to choose to pray to that god. So it might yes. not even, it's one of these things that might not even come up. It's basically like having the option of getting another blessings card. Yeah. So it's something to track, it's something to keep track of, but it doesn't seem like it would be overwhelming. I'm looking forward to trying some of the more robust ones, City of Iron, uh, the Atlantis expansion. There's a whole bunch of options, but I'm trying to introduce them piecemeal so I don't get overwhelmed and I don't end up in the situation where, as you would say, you open the box, can't decide how to play it, close the box, put it away. So I'm being conservative. All right. I got to play Men at Work. We've already talked about that before. Great dexterity game. It it looks fantastic. The only reason I'm bringing it up is that there was sort of like another sort of, we said the rules sort of fall apart. I found yet something else. It's sort of one of these things where a quarter way through the game, you seed this card in. And when the card comes up, when you place a piece on the board, if it is the highest piece, then you get a certificate. And based on the number of players, that determines how many you need to win. So what could happen if someone is one away or a couple of people are one away, the one person could be drawing cards that won't even allow them to come even close to being allowed to place the piece that's the highest. And it's just like, well... That's ridiculous. So it went around the board a couple times where it said, you know, place this piece and it has to touch at least these two pieces. And there was no possible way whatsoever that he could place it in a way that it would be highest. So it sort of just like took him out of the game or, you know what I mean? So it's just yet another way that the rules were made for it to fall apart. And that was Men at Work. Did somebody say dexterity games? I tried a couple new dexterity games. One of them is kind of new. I get to play Rhino Hero Giant Edition. So Rhino Hero is the sort of less interesting first draft of Rhino Hero Super Battle. Rhino Hero Super Battle being a game of intersecting buildings and a bizarre tower and a completely nonsensical theme about uh, anthropomorphic animal superheroes that aren't very heroic. They just serve to make your life difficult. And Rhino Hero is, uh, the, the original one is, is visually less compelling and much, much more simple. It's just this one tower that goes up. But when you make everything ginormous, suddenly it's awesome. And the components are beautiful. It's got these foil embossed cards. And very quickly, within a few turns, the tower is half as tall as you are. And I was playing with children. So very quickly, it became taller than several of the players, which again, was possibly unfair. But again, I I didn't want to pull punches. I didn't want to mislead them about the nature of the world, Walker. It would have been unfair to them. It would have led them to greater disappointment later. Uncle Mark had to demonstrate to them the cruel nature of reality. And that's why I stepped on their throats. Yeah, I hope you drowned. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. I stepped on the metaphorically speaking, says my lawyer to, te- to say. Um, so Rhino Hero in the Giant Edition was great. Is it worth 100 bucks? 
I don't know. That's a lot of money for Rhino Hero, but it's very visually impressive. And I will say this, if they come up with a giant edition of comparable scale of Rhino Hero Super Battle and they charge any amount of money, I'm probably going to pony it up. I probably shouldn't say this publicly, just like I shouldn't have told Simon that I would pay any amount of money for a scale Yggdrasil or Jormungand in Blood Rage. But if it happened, if there was a giant edition of Rhino Hero Super Battle, I would I would get it. The other dexterity game I tried was Parat and Billiard. This is a bizarre dexterity game that was put up by Abacuspiel. And imagine, if you will, a wooden grid with a canvas bottom. So you have these little balls in, in little uh, wooden cells, wooden square cells, but the bottom is canvas. And you have little hammers, and you hit them at the bottom from underneath the table that the game constitutes. The game makes a little table, has little legs that you screw in, in an attempt to get the ball to jump out of its uh, of its wooden cell and progress to the other side. It was kind of ridiculous. It's the kind of game that has a that rewards a very, very, very specific skill, and it's very hard to pull off. Very often, what happens is the ball will just jump out of play entirely, or will go backwards, or do any number of things. And furthermore, I was playing with children, and here I was with a blunt instrument, and the biggest challenge of the game was not employing the blunt instrument to cave in their 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 small, less developed skulls when they would do things like deliberately mess with my own pieces. Because rules matter, Walker, and if you don't enforce rules with violence, how are they ever going to internalize it? Stop being children, stop having fun, and play the way you're supposed to play. Exactly. Toys are to be taken seriously. And they refused to take the play seriously enough. I'm joking. The children were excellent. I'm mostly bitter because the owner of the game, let us call him Boston Dewey, uh, said that he wasn't able to trade the game and it's too difficult to ship so I could take the copy, at which point his daughter claimed that uh, that she would be bereft if Parat and Billiard were to leave the house. And I guarantee you that in a week, it will this will have been forgotten. This game belongs to me, Walker. This is fundamentally mine. I was robbed by small children. Wow. That is what happened. I, I, I'm exaggerating. Wow. It was kind of cool. It was it was gimmicky. I don't really think that it would have longe- the same kind of longevity as some of our favorite dexterity games, but it was absolutely unique. Being able to, you know, striking the underside of a table with little hammers is not something that I'm accustomed to, so it was definitely novel. And that was my experience with Perrette and Billiard. also got to play a game called Jiraku, which is something I've been meaning to try for a while. This was put up by Tasty Minstrel a couple years ago, and this is the English edition of a Japanese game, and it is a hybrid trick-taking area majority game. So this very, very interesting interplay between your board presence and playing cards to generate tricks. Every time when you play a card, that immediately allows you to take some number of actions or place some pieces out on the board, where on the board is a function of the card that you've played. And every time you win a trick you get to score the area where your leader piece is. Now, sometimes this is bad because if you find yourself in a position that you've won a trick and somebody else is outnumbering you wherever your leader piece is, that is unfortunate. You are just handing them points by having won the trick. But that's an interesting element of tension. You might think, well, I'm not going to win this trick, but I can outnumber the person who's going to win the trick and try to figure that out as well. There's also an interesting element of the regions scoring different points each round. You're basically migrating in a certain direction. There are these 
areas to the left side of the board that are worth a lot of points early on and none later, and there's areas on the right side of the board where there's the inverse, and so you have to try to move your pieces in that way. That was all cool. The biggest knock against Jiraku is that, to a large extent, your success or failure is going to be determined by the cards that you draw. There are better and worse hands, and it can absolutely be the case that the hand is going to put you in the eight ball. But one of the things that was pointed out during the play of the game, and I think this is entirely fair, is this is true of all trick-taking games. To varying extent, most trick-taking games are susceptible to rather significant luck of the draw. Now, Jiraku attempts in a variety of its placement rules to try to mitigate that and try to make sure that every card in theory is equally valuable. It doesn't wholly succeed, but after one play, I'm not 100% sure that Jiraku is more luck-based than, say, lots of other trick-taking games. So, to be honest... I'm not, the extent to which that's a, that's a criticism, I'm not certain yet. But it was quick, it was nice, it was novel. I really like both trick-taking and area majority, and this combination was really, really cute and neat. Very simple. Looking forward to trying it again, a small box game. And if it's the case that the luck elements are too consequential, then it probably won't have any staying power. But by the same token, if the luck elements can be kept in check, and or if with more experience you can see ways to deal with quote-unquote bad hands, then the game might have some legs. So that was my early experience with Jiraku. Those are the games we played this week. On to the news and why it does not matter. Starting with the big one, Mark. There's a big one. There's a big one. I really think it is. Because it's something I've been waiting for. It's finally happening. Simon has teamed up with this electronics company and they're coming out with this thing called T-Brew or Tabru. I'm not sure how, to, how they're going to pronounce I it. I think it's supposed to be quasi-Japanese and you're supposed to say Tabru. Tabru. I, I don't know. I, I, have, I haven't watched the announcement video, but I, am, I imagine it's supposed to be like, you know, romanization of, of, of Japanese. I, I could All right. Know. There you go. Anyway, long story short, it's going to be this large electronics pad. That when you put the game pieces down, it knows exactly what pieces you're putting down and the orientation that they're going to be in. This is a, a you know a very large generalization. Also, the dice that you use are also you know Bluetoothed into this pad, so it knows what face you rolled. It also keys into everyone's smartphone, so everyone has their own little personal data pad in front of them. The very first game is going to be in 2020. Simon's going to put in yet another. I know it's odd. You're not going to believe it. They're going to come back to this thing that they've never, you know, overused yet. It's going to be another Zombicide. Is it Zombabies? Zomb no, well, at first, I think... If it's Zombabies, I will pay them $5,000 for this the Tibidu. first draft. They were going to do that, and then I sent them, you know, cease and desist because they weren't going to pay me, you know, what they owed me. So That's just fair. They're just going back to normal Zombies. That's reasonable. Yeah, so they had to scrap all their be giant bee zombies. But, you know, that being said, back to this cool thing where every figure also has a little uh, tracker in it as well so as you move it around the board the system knows where your miniatures are if you go into a room with another player it comes up on your little personal pad and you can trade items with each other i really think you should go check out the video because it really shows exactly how interesting this system is going to be like a few about eight years ago there was a Polish company that hinted around doing a war game like this where you could, you know, put your phone underneath the table and you could get all your resources and buy your troops hiddenly, hidden and, you know, it all collate all this information into a thing. But that, you know, it never came to pass. But I think, and the fact that this is not just for one game is they call, they're calling it a console, right? So you're going to, it's going to be used for all, you know, all sorts of games. Hopefully it's not going to be CMON only, but the fact that, 
a large company like this is backing it right off the start, it's sure going to have its foot in the door as the number one, you know, first, you know, thing that's going to be on my table. I'm really looking forward to trying this out and seeing how they implement it differently in all these different games. On the one hand, I am crazy cynical and skeptical. On the other hand, I am certainly not blind to the possibilities, and I have to keep in mind that my cynicism is tempered by two things with which I have nothing but positive experiences of. One of them being Beasts of Balance, the dexterity game that is kind of sort of the same idea where you manipulate the physical objects with a strict correspondence to what's going on on a piece of software that's tracking to what's going on. And that was very fun and didn't have a lot of the same kind of technological barriers that would either rip me out of the tabletop experience or where the tabletop experience was just a hindrance to what was going on digitally. So if it's done seamlessly, and it can be done seamlessly, granted Beast of, Burn, uh, Beast of Balance is very, very simple, but if they can do it seamlessly, then maybe that'll be fun. And the other thing that I really, really like is a game called Artemis, which is a local land game, because that's basically what we're talking about here, a local land game with some sort of physical element. And Artemis, although it's strictly a PC game, we shouldn't spend too much time talking about PC games, but it does exploit physicality to a certain extent in that, and this is the cool thing about Artemis, it's sort of a, a spaceship simulator, you know, Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off. But the role of the captain the captain has no inputs in the game whatsoever. They can't even change what's on their view screen. They have to ask someone else to do it. And that is an instance of a, you know, a pure software experience exploiting physicality in some way to try to leverage a greater both thematic and gameplay immersion. So I've seen it done before. So as much as I would like to poo-poo this hardware entirely, I recognize that your enthusiasm is grounded in legitimate excitement. And maybe this could pay off in something exciting going forward. But as in the case of all consoles, insofar as this is actually a console, it's going to be the games that drive it. So yes. we'll wait and see. I also didn't mention there's also like a main tablet that everyone looks at and, you know, tells the story and does other things. And I feel as though they're going to do some really cool stuff with that where there'll be a story and everyone will have their own personal choice of what to do. And depending on how everyone votes secretly, it's going to change and no one's going to know who voted what or, you know, suddenly something will happen and no one will know why. Stuff like that. I think they're the you know, the sky is open for this kind of thing. Like they can do such cool, intricate things with this. And I'm just looking forward to seeing them totally use it. Well, like any other product announcement, given that we don't know the specs, given that we don't know the price, given that we don't know the release date, given that we don't know the the game lineup. We know the release date. It says 2020 right on the thing. Right. They wouldn't lie. So we can import whatever cynicism I have or whatever enthusiasm you have. It's a blank slate onto which you can project any of your hopes or any of your despair. So <laughs> we'll wait and see. News on Gen Con. Uh, I will not be there. Walker will not be there either. And I think we'll both be the happier for it. But there's some stuff coming out in Gen Con that I'm somewhat interested in. So I decided I'd, I'd list a couple things as they come up. One of them is Mental Blocks by Micah Sawyer. This is going to be a game where cooperatively you try to arrange blocks in a proper pattern. The problem is nobody has access to the full picture of how the pattern is. One player might have the perspective from a, uh, a card that shows the pattern from a top-down perspective. Another 
Another player might have a card from strictly from a side perspective. Another player might see it from a three-quarters isometric perspective, which is a great perspective, but no color is in the card. And so cooperatively, you have to come together in a very, very short time frame and arrange the blocks in the proper way. I am always interested in frenetic real-time games where you get to yell at each other and call people idiots, because that's what I do normally in a game, and this is considered antisocial. So if it's built into the game, I think that that's a good outlet yeah. for me. On top of this, there's the possibility of a traitor element, somebody who doesn't want people to get the right configuration together, Boy. and so they have to make claims about what they're... Pres- this is optional. You don't have to play okay. it that way. So I'm very I, I'm very enthusiastic about Mental Blocks, at least to see how it is. It's novel, it sounds cute, and it definitely looks like it's a new take on the sort of let's build something together sort of subgenre of game. So that's Mental Blocks by Micah Sawyer. Well, since you're talking about real-time, I'll talk about my real-time. If you like Kitchen Rush, which is a great real-time, you know, moving around, sand timers really quick, trying to get out of dishes. Artipia has a new game on Kickstarter called Rush MD. Same sort of thing. You're moving around these sand timers. You have one each, which is your doctor. You're trying to, you know, do surgeries and and give out pills and 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 give vitamins and get patients through fast as you know fix them up and get them out as quickly as possible it looks fantastic i can't wait to play it i love this notion of an or having the same frenetic atmosphere of a kitchen during the lunch rush that i find that hilarious it's, that's just amusing I to me know, it's good. It's like, we should definitely show that to our medical professional yeah, friends it's like we got to get these bodies moving get them out come on guys i got five people out the door i got a herniated disc i've got a guy with a going into sepsis come on going to be great get this hip in this person and out the door <laughs> so that's rush md by artipia games on kickstarter more gen con news over the course of the weekend i was in boston so i was able to visit the headquarters of Asmati games run by chris cheslick and they've been publishing a number of games by famed game author carl chuddick and his latest game is going to be called aegean c at least that's the working title now the the intention is to sell some copies at gen con in prototype form Chris Cheslick and Zmati Games have done this before on a couple of occasions. Uh, they did that certainly with Innovation, which, I, for my money, is Chuddick's best game. Chuddick is kind of the hipster of tableau building. He was into tableau building before it was cool. And the GNC is no exception. This, again, is with lots of uh, cards with multiple possible uses where you tuck lots of things. In other words, it's a Carl Chuddick game. And I was very intrigued by a lot of the elements. It's a very challenging sort of uh, optimization puzzle in a GNC. But of course, all the rules are up for grabs. This this could change a, a million ways to Sunday. But the attention, intention, again, is to let people have access to an early copy in Gen Con and see what happens from there. It's also the case that Asmati is working on a title uh, that is called 100 Doggos. Again, working title. I I suggested that he stick with the original version, which was one deck doggos to fit with the one deck system. But no, it's not a one deck game. And so the branding has to be anyway. There's just lots of doggos. It was a very, very quick, again, pseudo tableau builder where you're triggering combos and a whole bunch of things. Everything is up for grabs. Everything can change, but very, very neat. Anyway, if you're going to Gen Con, I would suggest you drop by the Asmati booth and see what they've got going on because Chris usually has some great ideas. Uh, full disclosure, of course, Chris has like it's a friend of mine, but that doesn't change the fact that they put out some very, very interesting stuff. So if you're going to Gen Con, I sincerely recommend you see what they're up to. Another bit of news, Dragon Ball Z. I wasn't a huge fan, but I know a lot of people love Dragon Ball Z, so I thought I'd just mention it. They're going to have a dice-driven combat game. Might be 
interesting. It's one of these things where, you know, you have your dream sort of pair off, you know, this is my favorite character against your favorite character and you roll dice and anything can happen. Dragon Ball Z. I'm looking forward to them implementing the mechanic whereby you just scream in terror for a full 10 minutes between episodes where a, while a very, very slow-moving ball of energy comes towards you. I, like, I want to do one where you grab a whole bucket of dice and you run at the person and they go, Oh my God, that's over 10,000! I believe it's 9,000. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> get, get your terrible memes and right. I definitely want the Canadian edition, which is Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <clears throat> So the Spill des Jahres announced their winners, and the one that w- uh, the game that won the SDJ is our preferred of the three nominees. It was just one, the excellent co-op word game. The Kinderspiel des Jahres, the child's uh, prize, was won by Valley of the Vikings, which we have not played, but it is a Haba dexterity game, and I have a great deal of difficulty imagining a Haba dexterity game being anything but awesome. So I heartily encourage that. And Wingspan won the Kennerspiel des Jahres, which is supposed to be, you know, the sort of Cognoscenti award. On the one hand, we are very enthusiastic that women designers are getting recognition. This was designed by Elizabeth Hargrave. On the other hand, calling a Wingspan, uh, calling Wingspan a, a serious gamers game is, um, shall we say, somewhat interesting. So I personally am somewhat conflicted on on this result. But good news for Just One, which we unambiguously recommend, or at least I do. Walker still hasn't tried it yet because he doesn't like fun. And that is the news out of the award circuit, which we don't really care about. Who just won it? Just won it. Just won it? Just won it. Gotcha. My last bit of news this is more like Mark news because he owns the game. It's Aristia. Aristia? Aristia? So this is why I don't say these... I believe it's pronounced Aristea. It's, Aristea. A, it's it's Greek in origin, but I don't know much about Greek pronunciation. Aristea. It's a great Blood Bowl type sport game. And it's very well supported by the company that puts it out, which is... Corvus Belly. Corvus Belly, that's right. And they've announced another expansion. So yet another game that's being fully supported that is really fun, that I really wish I could play more of. It does a great job of of moving the game around these different quadrants. Cause once you score over here, then the, the end zone will change. And then suddenly you have to move to a different part of the thing. And that totally opens up the map and, you know, all sorts of different special abilities. It's definitely something you need to try out. And that's Aristia. And soon they'll be coming out with their game called Defiance, which is going to be their co-op dungeon crawl, which we are simultaneously sick to death of, but can't help trying new versions of. So we'll see how that turns out. And that's the news for this week and why it, Totally doesn't matter. On to the topic of the week, which is tabletop miniature gaming, which has tons to do with board gaming. Well, it really does. Well, we talk about it on the show. We and do. It's on Board Game Geek, so... Exactly. No, but it all does. They all sort of intermix with each other. You know, they all come up with different versions, and some are very you know, hybrid that's very close to one way or the other, or, you know, dead center in the middle. Like, I think Blood Bowl and and games like that are, are very right down the middle. Aristea, for example, Aristea. is... So what I, I some people asked specifically about our tabletop miniatures biography how how we got into that little particular cul-de-sac of the hobby what what got you started well, down the... like I said like I've always said it always started with Space Hulk we we're at a at a convention I tried Space Hulk found out about Games Workshop started in that way up to the point where I had a a group that met every Saturday where about twenty up to twenty two people came to my home I had seven 
full gaming tables out there for people to use. I I could it was faster to list off what armies I didn't have <laughs> than to list off armies I did have. It was mostly we were playing Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k. So tons of terrain. Love the building, love collecting. This is going right into what I love about miniature gaming, right? So it's all about, you know, collecting the army you know, hearing about a new unit that's coming out or the fact that maybe your army that you really love is going to get another edition and hearing the rumors about, you know, how it's going to change, you know, painting, which, you know, is, you know, a very edge sword. It can be very fulfilling and relaxing, but if you get it, you know, you let, if you build up from experience, I've learned that if you build up too much of a backlog, then it just becomes painful. You don't enjoy it so much, but it's, it's like I said, Collecting the miniatures, making the terrain, creating the lists, you know, different army lists to see how they can work out. That's on. I don't want to go on too long. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. I was thinking about my entry into tabletop miniatures gaming. And it's strange because I think actually it was my first real entry into hobby gaming outside of role playing. Because in high school, we had this history teacher who, in addition to running a D&D club, and we ran a very strange uh, D&D campaign uh, with him. He was a very rules light in that sense. Uh, he also did Napoleonic's historical tabletop wargaming. And for a lot of people, when they say wargaming, we're going to get more into terminology later. When they say wargaming, for a lot of people, what they mean is miniatures gaming. And for a lot of people, when they say tabletop miniatures gaming, they necessarily mean the historical version. And that's how I got started. I got started in Napoleonics, and we were playing uh, an Avalon Hill rule set called Napoleon's Battles. Heavily, heavily modified. More on that later. For high school students, I had my little Russians, all based on, on pieces of balsa wood and painted with their great coats and, uh, and all that stuff. And that's how I got started. And later on, after I graduated... I didn't really do any miniatures gaming at all, and I was uh, into, into board gaming, and I actually got back into it through Mordheim, after it was long out of print. But that was back when no game had a campaign system, and Mordheim was sort of Games Workshop's fantasy version with a campaign element. And at the time, I had nothing with a campaign element in a, in a board gaming space, so I figured, hey, this is a low model way to get into things, and we did that for a while. Uh, that got me into the Rackham games, the pre-paints and all the other stuff, and that got me to Infinity, which is probably my miniatures game of choice now. A little bit of heavy gear, and now mostly I do actually a lot of the Osprey rule system, so this includes Gaslands, but it also includes things like uh, Rogue Stars, Horizon Wars, and uh, uh, Rangers of Shadowdeep, which is not an Osprey title, but it was uh, self-published. So... It's been a long winding path. I still do uh, tabletop miniatures wargaming, whereas I don't think you do it anymore. No, that's what anymore. I was going to finish off with. This yeah. is, that's when it all came crashing to an end, right? right. Like I said over almost 22 people every week, and then Games Workshop introduced their tournament system. And that went almost within weeks from 22 to zero. Wow. It just it just not did not appeal to any of us. This you know high competition, high necessity to win. We would always like modify the battles, like you know do no magic or you know you know we'd change it however we want. We, we really did play for fun. We really wanted to see how this unit played off of that unit. What happens if we did this? It was very much just playing for fun and enjoying the hobby as a whole. And then they brought in this you know very strict you know tournament system, and and everyone completely lost interest. And on that note. On our normal Saturday nights when people were playing, it was like the leftover people that when once we filled the table, it was like, you know, there would be four or five people that 
couldn't get on a table, those are the ones that we'd pull out a board game and we'd play. And, you know, that's how my board games collection slowly started because usually because there's people at my house and I could play almost whenever I wanted, I'd usually be the person sitting out. So I'd be teaching a board game or something, running the board game part of it. So that's weird. You got into board games via an overdose of minis and I got into minis via an overdose of board games. There you go. And, and that a lot of that is fascinating, that narrative, because it really highlights the extent to which in very serious ways, tabletop miniature wargaming is its own thing. It's like an entire hobby unto itself. There's a lot of crossover, but less than you might think. And perhaps most importantly, it has its own, for lack of a better term, cultural elements. There's there's a certain set of, there's a certain mindset that accompanies a lot of miniature wargaming. And this has been true everywhere I've lived and everywhere I've done miniature gaming. And I let, let, let's talk uh, a, a little bit about this. I, I One of the things that, so I divided it up into three categories. There are elements of miniature wargaming that I really like. There's some stuff that's just very different and I, I, I could take or leave. And then there's the stuff that's really awful and I wish the hobby could get rid of. So you mentioned before about how, you know, painting and collecting was a serious element of the hobby. And that's one of the things that's really striking to me because I approach miniatures games primarily as a gamer. But miniature wargaming allows any number of different ways to appreciate the hobby. I know lots of people who have miniatures collections that put mine to shame, but have never played any of the games on which they're based. All they want to do is collect and paint these miniatures, whereas I only paint as an absolute last resort because I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it so much, Walker. I've always hated arts and crafts, and I've never been good at it, and the only reason why I do it is when I feel like I have to and when I'm embarrassed by unpainted figures. It's a shame. And you, but you, on the other hand, were one of those guys who loved to paint and collect, but also loved to field and play Correct. the actual game. 100%. Yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the omnivores. And that's one of the things that I have here listed as one of the, the, the great elements of the hobby. I have found that the tabletop miniatures gamers tend to be very, very, very supportive and very helpful in terms of things like sharing supplies. You know, here's a pot of whatever you need. Go and, and, and paint your thing. That's generally been my experience. Definitely very helpful with sources and tips and tricks and advice about, hey, I found this thing at a dollar store that looks really good as terrain. And here we can here's a picture of my thing in progress. Do you have any suggestion about what to do when people show up and give tips about techniques and so forth? Has that not been your yeah, experience? Are you, do you, are you going anywhere with that, or is that the end? No, of I was just part? saying okay. that's one of the thing about okay. th- it is that that is totally true. All of that is exactly true. They're totally helpful, totally great until they start playing the game. Yes, yes, absolutely, completely. That is one of the things that I have listed here as as one of the huge cons of miniatures wargaming. Very often. There's this strange competitiveness that manifests itself in so many toxic and unpleasant ways. And I don't know, I know some of the ways, uh, I know a little bit about where it comes from, but I, I, I don't know all of where it comes from. Part of it is, I think, this intersection of what I would call looseness, because generally speaking, what we're talking about are the games with no hexes, no boards, you have to measure everything. Sometimes there's template movement, but usually it's, you know, something moves six inches and you measure six inches. And... The opportunity for cheating, the, whether accidental or deliberate, True. can be huge, well, and that sets some people on edge. True. It's also cheating's very strong. Fudging would be, would be <laughs> another word, like where you you know they inch forward just slightly, and not sometimes like you said, not purposely. Like, sure. You know, and you sort of look down and see, like I've seen a guy like the back of his hand, the tape measure sliding forward, and the, and this this chaos guy charged like thirty seven inches or something, ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> That is ba- that is also I think that also keys into the fact 
of exactly what we were talking about before, where you we're collecting these figures, we're painting these figures. These are our figures. Oh, this is okay. My army. I've worked hard on this. I created the list. I, you know, this. You know what I mean? It's I like, hear you. It's very personal. These things are very personal because you've put all this work into it now, right? And now you're putting it on the table and you spent all this time on it. And now, you know, it's time. Now to they're play. being shot at. Now they're being shot at. You're <laughs> killing my guys. Well, not necessarily losing, but it's just the fact that, you know, this is this is mine and I'm ready to play with it now. You know, I'm ready to have fun. And, and if anything sort of hints that it might be ruining that fun or not doing it right, then, you know, it's probably just sets people right off. That's a good point, because one of the great things about most of the really good tabletop miniature systems is they tend to have, and this is one of the things that I've never liked about Games Workshop, I, I fully respect the fact that some people adore Games Workshop, you really have to buy into the world, you have to buy into the fluff, you have to buy into the story, and you're encouraged to really sort of identify with the army or armies that you're building. Now, when it comes to Infinity, and you start, if anyone starts talking trash about Panoceania, I am ready to argue until I'm blue in the face far more than I would about, you know, any any sort of strategy or anything like that in, in most uh, board games. And that inspires another thing that I really hate. And I sometimes I see myself do it as well. A certain kind of puffery. I've talked about this before. Well, it's, yeah, like, it's, it's big in D&D, right? Yes. It's like, have you seen my character, right? Stuff like that. And, so and, awesome. And so it bleeds out in this. It's like, oh, have you seen this list? Look how I squeezed in this many yep. points or see what I got out of this many points, right? It definitely, yes, feeds yeah. into that. Absolutely. All right, let's go over some. You've covered all the bad like all the good points. I've gone over, uh, I went over my good points. And the one that crossed over was definitely the campaign part was the fact that, you know, it's, not very many board games have it, and usually in this type of system, it's very much deeper and and has a whole story and and there every battle has a consequence. You know what I mean? It's, and it feels a lot more personalized than it would be in a board game. I feel one of the things that I find that's not necessarily better or worse, but just very different is we talked about this in the context uh, months ago about house rules and variants. And generally speaking, there is a natural default resistance to house rules and variants in a lot of board gaming contexts. But miniatures gamers, as a rule, tend to be far, far more open to, as you would say, fudging rules. Not not here in the sense of getting a competitive edge, but because they don't think that something makes sense based on either their preconceived notions about how a historical unit acted or what it behaved or the stats or how bows work or you well, name it. In, in historical games, definitely not in any in I've seen games it, workshop games. I've seen it all the time oh, in really? every different context. Look, the games workshop system, after all, is the, the, the system, their games are what invented the whole acceptance that these that there's going to be an endless series of disputes hard-coded into games workshop rule systems is the acknowledgement that you're not going to get consensus about everything that's why you roll off for role, rules disputes that's why they put it in there i think not just because they knew that their players were going to be stubborn or not because they suspected that they would do anything to get a competitive advantage although sometimes that's true but because they recognize that there's going to be in very like the intuitions that people bring to a certain context we've you and i have disagreed about rules interpretations before but they are dwarfed by even just the base level of talking in, from different sets of axioms that I encounter on the regular when doing tabletop uh, miniatures True. gaming. And, and I, th I would say 99% of our rules disputes that you and I have is that I think we're already agreeing about the outcome. We're just uh, disputing on, on the wording and whether the fact that it's, yes, it is worded badly or yes, it can mean a different thing. Yes or no. Anyway. Fair enough. 
All right, let me blow through some bad points really quickly. So many systems out there. You know, like we already talked about all the Warhammer systems, Infinity, X-Wing. There's so many. How are you going to pick one and how are you going to find a group big enough that you're going to be able to play with? There's so many out there. Where to start, what to do. Well, that's the thing. Generally speaking, the advice that everyone gives with respect to what system to pick is almost always the same and it's still good advice. Pick whatever people locally play. Yes, go into your local store, see what's being played a lot. You know, stand by a game, see if it's something that you like, give it a try. Uh, unless it's something like Gaslands, where the barrier to entry is so low, both in terms of cost and in terms of buy-in, because everyone wants to play with Hot Wheels cars. Unless it's something like Gaslands, unless it's something uh, where, you know, you can subsidize everyone's activity, you can't be the only person in the corner who wants to play War Machine. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I'm going to go right down to the huge startup. You have to have... Like, if you don't have your local gaming store, you have to have all the train that you have to have, all the rule books you have to buy, all the miniatures you have to buy, measuring tapes, cards, counters, templates, paint, glue, all of these things. Huge startup cost if you're not already, like, slowly building your way into it. Massive. But, and I'm not, this is not, this is not meant as a defense of the expense of the hobby. Once you get past all that, once you've been doing it for a few years and you just start accumulating pieces here and there as, as they're inexpensive, you then find yourself in a position, if you're lucky, a few years down the road, of being able to pick up any rule system and have supplies ready for it. I've got enough sci-fi terrain to populate almost any table. And so I can pick up a game, a, a new Osprey rule set and give it a shot. And that, that flexibility is wonderful. And it makes me feel like I was making a sage investment when really what I was doing was burning up a lot of money. All right, redoing additions. This is the biggest problem in Games Workshop. Planned obsolescence, yeah. Yeah, where they, you know, obsolete certain things. Or like I have the very next point, obsoleting miniatures. So you have to buy the new stuff. So that's a bad point. That's mostly a Games Workshop problem, though. I found that much less prevalent in other rule systems. Well, I think it makes sense, right? Because that's my next point is that because they need this constant flow of money. Which leads into a good point, good point where some, where well, is is a bad point actually is that so will it be will your game be supported after the fact like you buy all this stuff and maybe it doesn't need to be supported game maybe you're happy the way it is it's like i have this you know some of my friends have armies we have enough even if they don't keep supporting it we're good we'll play these games boom, boom, boom. well i i think it depends i i think mostly your experience with games workshop has led you believe that there's one dominant model for the economic distribution of these games. My experience has primarily been through Infinity uh, uh, lately, and Infinity very clearly says, we are in the business of selling miniatures. We are going to give you the rules. We are going to give you all the stats. We are going to make everything free for you. The only thing you're ever going to pay us for is specifically minis. And over the course of the entire run of Infinity, it's been around for almost two decades now, they've obsoleted like three units, yeah, no, and that's I'm, about it. I'm not under the, the thing that there's only one way. Right. I'm under the thing that I know Games Workshop thinks yes. that there's only one way. What I'm saying is, is that the variety of different people approaching the hobby in different ways, like, for example, me who hates to paint and just wants to, uh, just wants to play interesting games with lots of variety, and the other person who just, uh, who just wants to paint and doesn't really care about the game system. Similarly, there are lots of different miniatures game companies that have radically different business models and different conceptions about what it is to support their product line. That's all I wanted to point out. All right, so generally, there's a ton of painting to do. I know there are some games that only need two or three figures, but generally... It is a lot of painting, either between the figures that you're playing with or the train that you want to play on. There was there was a brief moment where pre-paints looked like it was going to be a thing. You know, the Rackham pre-paints were very, very nice. The rule, the rule set that they released with the pre-paints was not so hot. You know, the, the, the glory days of Heroescape, which is not really a tabletop miniatures game because it's got hexes, but, you know, close enough. 
It looked like it was going to happen. You can still get pre-painted miniatures. There's some companies that offer small amounts, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a huge hassle. Expensive. Ridiculously expensive. Yep. Yeah, well, we've been talking about that, yeah. All right. Usually means you're going to be playing with strangers. In tournament settings, definitely, but... Yeah, but I mean, like, if, if it's friends, it's usually one or two, and you usually want to play against, you know, different types of armies, and usually, you know, if you want to play a lot, you're going to have to, you know, set it up at the store, and sometimes you're playing with strangers. That's true. My My biggest con with respect to miniatures gaming and one of the reasons why I sometimes I'm embarrassed to be a tabletop miniatures gamer is that uh, it is say what you want about how male dominated board gaming is generally miniatures gaming is far far worse and miniatures gaming as a rule has a very very bad history of tremendous tremendously embarrassing and harmful and destructive instances of harassment that have not gone addressed by parent companies. A lot of different miniatures game companies have had problems where their staff have done terrible things and there's been no follow-up. It is also the case that the representation of women in most of these games has been terrible. I will definitely call out Infinity here. Infinity, in many ways, is, it reminds me a little bit of a Pax Renaissance. Pax Renaissance has all this racist nonsense in the rulebook, but by the, by the same token, the game represents its very cosmopolitan view of the Renaissance, or, you know, representing people from the East. Similarly, in Infinity, what you have is a marvelously cosmopolitan vision of the future. That's what that's what initially drew me to it. It was the uh, the thing that sold me on the system at the end of the day was a, uh, a a turban Sikh in power armor who was a member of the Sikh calls. Oh, by the way, Satsriya call to all of our uh, Sikh listeners, and well, Satsriya call to everybody actually. And that was what really sold me. And you can have Maori troops, and you can have Maasai troops, and you can have all manner of things, and a whole bunch of non-white, non-males represented. But the women are always represented in this terrible, boob-heavy, you know, mechanical high-heel nonsense. The latest blister pack that was released for the uh, for, for the orcs, which is a marvelously cool Panosinian troop. The men have this lovely, bulky power armor. The women have this sort of svelte, hip-accentuating, yeah. high-heel uh, breastplate emphasizing their cleavage. It's... It, uh, Anyway, and I'm tired of having to apologize for a lot of what goes on in miniatures gaming. There was, you know, for years there was there was War Machine as well with their play like you've got a pair, and they were so systematically cavalier about any attempts to change how male-dominated and chauvinistic the culture was. So the 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 culture of competitiveness is toxic, but I think just as toxic is a lot of the representation of and treatment of women in the context of, of miniatures gaming. It's a shame. Agree with all of that. On to the next point. Almost 99% of them are two-player only. Absolutely. There are, you know, some variants in some games, or there are some games that you can play multiplayer, or there's some you know, where you can like team up or all play. Anyway, that being said, mostly all two-player. Then space. You know, To play a board game, sometimes you can be on a fairly small table. To play these miniature games, you need a huge you know, either 4 by 6 4 by 8 table, and you have to be able to store the train and your figures and blah, blah, blah. Next is balance, i.e. what I'm talking about here is when, when these games come out, a lot of the times the units or figures are not balanced for play. There's always a rat is coming out later, you know, changing up the units, saying, oh, we have the need to change this to make it play better, blah, blah, blah. And it seems to be huge in miniature games as opposed to, you know, board games. Despite all this, and I agree with all of those negatives, and I've, I've articulated my own, I found myself asking the question, you know, laying out all, all this and thinking about the tremendous amount of time and money I've spent on miniatures game. Why do I keep coming back to it? And at the end of the day, it's because the level of personality and variety that you can get out of a good miniatures game system 
eclipses any other board game that I've ever experienced. Now, when we when we talked about, I just want to call back to some board games that we we talk about and we praise them as being almost like a tabletop miniatures game. So there's Heroescape, which is an example which probably comes the closest, but still most tabletop miniatures game systems will still eclipse and dwarf the level of variety you can find in uh, find in Heroescape, even with all the expansions. Battlelore Second Edition, we said it's close to having a, you know a strategic miniatures game in a box. Still not quite the same. And so the visual, uh, the the visual detail, the sort of narrative detail that is often built into these things, we get invested in these little men and women not just because we painted them, but also because the good systems have done such a good job of presenting them. In a, in a fully-fledged universe. And the ability to create a list that is personalized to the kind of game you want to play or the kind of unit you want to field or the kind of mood you want to set is absolutely unparalleled. And those experiences in miniatures gaming are why I continue to sink this kind of investment of time and money into it. Yeah, and I think it all leads back to what we said before and to our childhood, which I'll get to at the end of this, is like when we talk about board games, we always talk, always talk about these awesome narratives that spring up. It's like, oh, this is happening because of this, and we form these stories. And this happens tenfold in miniature games. It's like in your own head, you're creating this, you know, huge movie scene of all of this, you know, huge battle taking place. And I think it harkens back to our childhood. You know, we're playing, you know, army men in the sandbox. We love that. And this is just, you know, breaking down the rules so, that, you know, so it's fair for everybody type thing and makes it, making it more interesting. And I just think it just brings back that feeling of, you know, this, you know, internal struggle between these two sides facing off against each other. And, you know, like you said, and we have these personal invested interests in our side even more so than it was back then. And we'd be remiss if we didn't emphasize the tactile element to tabletop miniatures games as well. We talk about this in the context of dexterity games. We talk about this in the context of other kinds of games. I'll mention again, there was a there's a critic by the name of Scott Nicholson who repeatedly referred to miniatures as dolls. And this offended a great many of his viewers. They said, they're not dolls, they're, they're miniatures, they're figurines, like they're all toys. At the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, they're all just toys. And if you don't want to play with toys at all in the hobby, that's fine, I can respect that. If it's all numbers and systems to you, that's cool. But at the end of the day, I still like playing with toys. And whether that's in the context of something like Men at Work, or whether it's in the context of something like Infinity, they're different kinds of play experiences, but they're both very tactile, and that is very appealing to me. Well, thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Check out the auction. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.